Our Bible reading this morning comes from the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 31, beginning to read at verse 27. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will plant the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the offspring of men and of animals, just as I watched over them to uproot and tear down, and to overthrow, destroy, and bring disaster, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. In those days, people will no longer say, the fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. Instead, everyone will die for his own sin. Whoever eats sour grapes, his own teeth will be set on edge. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbour, or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness, and will remember their sins no more. So you open your Bible and you find that it's divided into two sections. There's the Old Testament, uh, 39 books, the New Testament, 27 of those. The Old Testament starts with the story of creation, tells the story of Israel. The New Testament starts with the birth of Jesus, ends with... Uh, yeah, Jesus becoming all in all, the glories of heaven. Have you ever wondered why we use the word testament to describe these two different sections of the Bible? When God brought his people out of Egypt, he made a covenant with them. The privilege of being God's chosen people brought with it the responsibility of keeping his laws. And in the book of Exodus, the people pledged to do this. And the rest of the Old Testament pretty much tells the story of their failure to honour that pledge. So in Jeremiah 31, God promises he will make a new covenant with his people. He will cut a new deal with them. And when Jesus appears on the scene, he declares he is the one who brings this new covenant into operation. He made that clear at the last meal he shared with his disciples. As they shared a cup of wine together, he told them, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
So if you like, the Old Testament is essentially about God, Israel's failure to keep the covenant that God made with his people through Moses. And the New Testament is about the new covenant that God has made with his people through Jesus. And the thing is that the New Testament word for covenant can also mean a will, in the sense of someone's last will and testament. It's a word with two meanings, and the book of Hebrews has a bit of fun playing around on the ambiguity of the word, saying that God's covenant with his people is rather like a, a will and testament, because it only comes into operation when someone dies. And when they translate it, the New Testament into Latin, they use the Latin word testamentum to translate the Greek word for covenant. So when Jesus talks about this cup being the new covenant in my blood, in the Latin translation he says it's the Novum Testamentum in my blood. And when Paul talks about Israel having a veil over their faces when the Old Covenant is read, the Latin translation is Elixio in a Veteris Testamenti, literally in the reading of the Old Testament. So over time, the bit of the Bible that dealt with the Old Covenant came to be known as the Old Testament, the books that we read there. And correspondingly, the material relating to the New Covenant that Jesus brought in came to be known as the New Testament. And I tried to find out when those words were first used in that way, but I've not been able to, so I'm afraid I can't tell you. But the phrase New Covenant is first used by the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 31 in that passage that will be read to us. Chapters 30 to 33 of Jeremiah have come to be known as the Book of Consolation, because Jeremiah is pretty much doom and gloom from beginning to end, except in the middle you get these four chapters where there's a glimmer of hope for the future. And the promise of a new covenant forms part of that hope. At the time when Jeremiah wrote, things were pretty bleak. The relationship between God and his people had broken down seemingly irrevocably. The people had broken God's covenant with them. He'd been like a husband to them, and they had been like a wife who was unfaithful. And the consequences have been catastrophic. God talks of watching over them to uproot, to tear down, to overthrow, to destroy, to bring disaster. This is strong stuff. This is the language of a jealous, jilted lover. This is no amicable separation. When love has been betrayed, when commitments have been broken, when a relationship has been trashed, the consequences are destructive. And that's what happened between God and his people. Jerusalem in ruins, God's people in exile, the relationship finished, nothing left but charred remains and bitter regrets. But among the remnants of the nation in exile in Babylon, there were protests that God had gone too far, that he hadn't been altogether fair in visiting the sins of the fathers on the children and the grandchildren to the third and the fourth generation. There was a sense in which those in exile were suffering the consequences of the willfulness of the generations above them. We, We didn't deserve this, was the feeling. They were like children caught up in the acrimony of their parents' divorce, not being responsible for what was going on around them, but inextricably mired in it so damaged themselves that admittedly 
they ended up living lives that were a mess as well. And suffering and the collateral damage between the break, caused by the breakdown of the relationship between God and their parents, the children coined a say to express their plight. The fathers ate sour grapes and the children's teeth were set on edge. This is what our fathers did. These are the consequences that were suffering. That actually is precisely how, if you ask them, the up-and-coming generation feel about climate change. The irresponsibility of the generations before are visiting untold consequences on the generations to come as we pass on to them a planet damaged beyond repair. And God says, it's time for a new start. Time for a fresh beginning. Time for a totally different footing. Each of you bears responsibility for your own life. And I'm going to make a new covenant with my people and this time it's going to be different. It's not going to be like the covenant I made with their forefathers which which they broke. This new covenant will have four new clauses that mark out God's new deal with his people. And the first clause is, God says, I'm going to put my law in your hearts I'm going to write it on your minds. You will think differently, and because you think differently, you will live differently. No stone tablets this time. The original problem was quite simple, and we've all experienced it in one way or another. It's one thing knowing what you ought to do. Knowing what you ought to do and actually doing it, well, that's something different entirely. There's nothing quite like being told you're not allowed to do something to make you, for some reason, want to do it. Just because you can't. Why, why shouldn't I? Why not? If you've brought up small children, you will know that they are always pushing the boundaries. And some of us never stop doing that, even when we grow up. To the point that we push the fence that's supposed to protect us right into the ravine and end up falling in after it because we don't know any better. Some of us really want to do the right thing, but somehow, despite our best intentions, we end up doing the wrong thing. How does that happen? I see this, I know it's a good thing, I know I ought to do it. How do I end up doing that instead? Might be ignorance, might be weakness. Might be our own deliberate fault. St. Paul, the doctor of the soul, diagnoses the problem and says, if you've had that experience, it's sin. It's sin hijacking your life. It's sin overruling your best intentions. It's sin turning God's law against you. And there's only one remedy, and that is to invite the Spirit of God into your hearts. To inscribe his laws, his ways on the table of our souls, imparting within us both the desire and the ability to begin to do the right thing, to live life a different way, to embrace goodness and to draw on the deep satisfaction with living that comes from doing so. It's about placing our lives entirely at God's disposal and allowing him to change us from the inside out. So the first term of God's new deal is God says, I'm going to write my law in your hearts and on your minds. Put my spirit within you and make you a new creation. Things are going to be different from now on. 
And the second clause is the promise, quite simply, that the Lord will be our God and we will be his people. The broken, fractured, damaged relationship is mended. We're reconciled. And for our part, we are, we are glad to belong to God, to know that God is real and that God loves us. And God, for his part, is proud to own us as his children. You will be my people, says the Lord. I will be your God. Those words might seem a little bit banal to you. But if you've ever suffered the trauma of being disowned by someone you love, you will know how much it can mean just to say, yes, that relationship is restored. I'm yours. And you are mine. We belong to each other. A few months ago, Sue and I watched Stephen Polyakov's drama, Summer of Rockets. One of the subplots was a couple grieving over their son who had simply disappeared. And when they did eventually track him down, he affected not to know them. He pretended he wasn't their son, that they got the wrong person, wanted nothing whatsoever to do with them. Until that point in the drama when he comes up behind his mother and says, Mum. Quite an emotional moment, actually. The relationship which he had been denying was restored again. The reality of the connection was made again. And the grief that his parents felt when he disowned them and said, I'm not your son, you're not my parents, that was healed when the relationship he'd been denying was restored. And the grief that you see their parents feeling is the grief that God feels when we deny him. We say, you're not real, don't belong to you, don't want anything to do with you. But when that relationship is mended, when we say to God, yes, you are my God, and God says, yes, you are my people, then there's joy in that. The God who created us in love is grieved beyond measure when we turn our backs on him. But when we turn back to him and that relationship is restored, then wow, those words, I will be your God. And you will be my people. They are recharged with emotion and with love and with power that comes out of a broken relationship being reconciled. And the third clause of the covenant, well, that makes me a bit redundant, really. Jeremiah says, you don't need anyone to teach you how to know the Lord. You'll all know him for yourselves, from the least of you to the greatest. Because the relationship that God wants with you, with each of you, is not one that needs to be mediated through someone standing at the front of church telling you what you need to believe. The relationship that God wants with you, that God makes available to you, is direct, unmediated, and deeply personal. It's God coming into your life. It's God whispering in his ear that you, you are his beloved son. You are his beloved daughter. This is God entering your heart by his spirit and making his home in your life. And God doesn't single out the brightest and the best of us. From the least of us to the greatest, without distinction, God says, you will be my people. You will know me personally. For yourself, not knowing about God as if you sit down and you take the test. It's a personal relationship, knowing God one to one. What then is the point of church? 
Or this is the place where we come together as God's family to celebrate the relationship that we have with him. Without that relationship, I think everything we do in church could be pretty pointless. But once you know God for yourself, once you discover your identity as his beloved child, then everything we do here on a Sunday begins to make sense because in any loving relationship it stops being about me and becomes about you, the one I love. That's why we come here to worship God, to respond to his grace, to say thank you God for loving me that much. God, I just love you back. That's what we express here in worship. That's why we come to do this. To celebrate the relationship, the personal relationship that God has made with us through his son. And in Brighton Baptist Church, are we good, upright, upstanding, respectable people? Have we got it all together? Are we pillars of the community? Will our lives withstand rigorous moral scrutiny? No. I'd be out of a job. If that were true, we are all flawed human beings who get it wrong, who trip up, who make mistakes, who make a mess of things, who upset each other. We are, after all, only human. But get this, God says, I will forgive your wickedness and remember your sins no more. Wickedness, that's quite a strong word actually. This is not God turning a blind eye to some petty misdemeanour. This is a long list of serious offences being wiped from the record. Deleted from the hard drive. Even, impossible as it is for anyone to do this, erased from the cloud. Gone. Gone. Whatever it was you have done in your past that has blighted your life. God blots it out. Does a deep cleanse on your conscience. Releases you from the ball and chain of the past. And how does he do that? He does it through Jesus. Every single one of our sins and failings was nailed through his hands and feet to the cross. He took those sins with him to the grave and buried them there. And when he rose again the third day, they were gone. They were gone. And that sets you free. That means you are okay. That means you are forgiven. You are a new person. You can hold your head up high. <coughs> and those things which, which stay with you because you've never been able to forgive yourself, God forgives them. God forgives you. That's his grace. And that's why we celebrate communion together. Because when we break the bread, we remember Jesus dying on the cross to put us right with God. Taking upon himself all of our sin. Dying with it to deal with it. And when we drink the wine, we remember him saying, this cup, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, the new covenant made possible by my death, the new covenant which means that God puts his spirit into your heart to change you from the inside out, the new covenant that means that God acknowledges you as his beloved child, 
The new covenant that means that you can know the living God personally for yourself. And that you can receive the liberation that comes with his forgiveness. That's why we drink the bread. Drink, drink the wine and eat the bread. That's why we remember. That's why we worship. And if you want to respond just for the first time this morning and say, Ah, oh, God, your grace. Yes, thank you for your grace in my life that erases the past, that makes a difference to me. It enables me to know you, that changes me from the inside out. Then take the bread. Drink the wine. Jesus gave his life for you. And as you do so, say, thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for giving your life for me. Jesus, I give my life back to you.